Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Now, before I'd start, I would like to acknowledge that I am broadcasting today on the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, here where their sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, I pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging and to those of all other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. On today's show, In Contested Breath, a beautiful and incredibly moving essay in this edition's Australian Book Review. Sarah Walker documents her mother's sudden death at the onset of the pandemic and lockdown. Sarah joins me to talk about exploring this incredibly personal experience and, of course, the art of turning the personal into an essay. But soon. It's 2007 and at a natural history auction in New York City, a 13,000-year-old mammoth tells the story of how his fossilised remains ended up in this collection, wittily stumbling from the Pliocene era through 19th century history to more modern times. That's the incredible premise of Chris Flynn's mammoth, an enjoyably playful satire taking on the Anthropocene in a way that will have you laughing at hominids' folly. Chris will join me on the line very shortly. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. It's 2007 and at a natural history auction in New York, a 13,000-year-old mammoth regales a Tyrannosaurus beta, a Paleos... I'm going to get this wrong. A Paleosophenicus and a Pterodactylus with how his fossilised remains ended up in this collection, wittily stumbling from the Pliocene era through 19th century US history to more modern times. That is the incredible and incredibly difficult to pronounce premise of Chris Flynn's mammoth. It is an incredible uh, journey of fossil shadow boxing with the Anthropocene in a way that will have you laughing at the hominids' folly. Author Chris Flynn joins me on the line now. Chris, welcome to Backstory. Hello, Mel. That was a pleasure listening to you <laughs> try to pronounce it. Oh, see, listen to how smoothly that rolls off your tongue. That's <laughs> just, I, I'm really, I mean, genuinely that, uh, I guess that setup really leaves more, uh, more questions than answers. So let's just start with that. Why on earth um, did you decide to kind of create this strange world uh, that Mammoth set sail in? Right. Uh, I didn't really create it, I guess, because it's actually a thing that happened. So the 2007 Natural History Auction in New York, they happen every year, these auctions, and they sell dinosaur bones and megafauna bones and shark's teeth and meteorites, all the usual sort of ephemera. And um, the one in 2007 actually had a prehistoric penguin, uh, the, hand, the severed hand of an Egyptian mummy, the skull of the Tyrannosaurus batar, which is the Mongolian cousin to the T-Rex, and the mammoth for sale. And that itself is just a curious, you know, piece of news. But 
then um, there was celebrities like Nicolas Cage and Leonardo DiCaprio fighting over the bones. I'm trying to out, trying to outbid the Natural History Museums for them, and they did. And so Cage won the Tyrannosaurus skull, stuck it up on his wall as opposed to show what a big man he is. Um, but of course, it turned out to have been stolen, and they had to give it back. Um, but the that in itself was like I thought oh, that's a fun story. And then I at the same time I'd kind of read that in early 1800 um, Jefferson, who was just who just been elected, was doing exactly the same thing. He was um, trying to find mammoth bones in order to show what a big man he was and put him up on the wall of the White House. And so I thought, oh, there's a funny story going on here about the how men unearth these bones and try to appropriate them um, as symbols of power. And eventually I came to the conclusion that the best way to tell the story was the fossils themselves the night before the auction, yeah. talking about how they died, who dug them up, when they dug up, when they were dug up and why. Yeah, it, you really do wind through and tell these histories in a, in a great way, especially with this sort of, you know, in quite incredible sort of narration that's going on. But, you know, through that narration, you're getting these very sort of witty, you know, wise-talking kind of characters that are um, that at the same time laying these sort of historical facts at your feet. I was sort of reminded, look, it's not, I don't want to say that the style is, is the same as Lincoln in the Bardo, um, the George Saunders novel, mm. but I did feel like there were, it definitely was in the same kind of frame as that in the sense that you are sort of, you know, as you, as it's put in a lot of the sort of publicity literature around your book, a mostly true story. Um, you're sort of playing with these true historical elements um, and then just, you know, doing things with them to sort of, you know, give us a sort of underlying sense of, of these right. great absurdities. <laughs> yeah. You're the second person to mention Lincoln and the Bardo to me, um, although I've not actually read it. Ah, um, that's interesting. You should. And, yeah, I should read it. Um, but I... I'm a big fan of George Saunders. I had read a lot of his short stories over the years, and I loved how he would set stories in theme parks where you know you'd have people dressing up as um, med- medieval serfs or something like that, and them just complaining on their break about uh, about how stupid it all was. Um, but the whole idea of having a essentially mammoth is a non-fiction book, right? But with a fictional framework. Mm. So as much of the story as I possibly could is verified and true, you know, as, as best as I can research it. Um, but then that enabled me to um, add my own little fictional elements to it. Um, obviously, the animals speaking to each other is a fictional element, we think. Um, <laughs> but um, I've, I've thrown in a few invented historical characters alongside the real historical characters, mm. um, who and often, oftentimes will say things that are things that they are sort of lifted from their writings of the day. So um, I think it's sort of, it's quite good fun to play around with history because history is fascinating in that we just sort of take it as read when someone says, oh, this is what happened. Well, we don't really know. We weren't really there. And and who writes history? You know, it's often um, patriarchal winners. <laughs> so we don't really know whether they're telling us the full story or not. And so I like to play around with that idea of historical fiction mingling it with historical fact um, where you're not quite sure what's true and what's not. It's a really, I mean there couldn't really be a better metaphor for the kind of, you know, for I guess colonialism than than these kind of fossils that have been you know, dug up, taken from their their 
you know, place um, and, you know, used as sort of curiosities, I guess. Um, and, you know, and, and the fact that, you know, you're still sort of seeing this sort of being treated as toys for the wealthy, um, you know, in 2007 is quite an extraordinary sort of um, setup for this whole arrangement. You know, were you sort of thinking of, of creating a book? Um, I mean, it, you very much sound like you came into it through the, through being sort of, you know, quite sort of interested in the story itself. But did you, were you thinking along those lines as you were going through um, and creating the book? Yeah, as soon as I started thinking, oh, I'm going to have the um, bones themselves tell the story, I became very aware of the fact that the bones were um, a commodity and that they'd lost their agency and that they were still being used um, for um, human various, sometimes nefarious human purposes. And, of course, I was then instantly reminded of um, the problems that, you know, a lot of Indigenous people have had in Australia with the British Museum and so on with mm-hmm. regards uh, over the years so, um, with regards to the returning of human remains and how we still do that, you know, even today. It's, um, and we always have commodified not just animal remains but human ones too. And that's, that's super creepy to me, this idea that, you would, I mean, imagine if someone dug up your grandmother and um, and sold her to a museum. <laughs> it's it's yeah. insane. Of course, you'd want her back. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of cultures, um, the like, identity and and the idea of um, a spirit and personality is actually still linked with the bones after death. And um, I noticed a few parallels with the animal um, bones um, in Siberia, where they're digging up. Well, there's mammoths um, thawing out from the permafrost because that's melting, and um, people are digging them up and selling the tusks um, to um, ivory traders and um, also trying to collect the bones to give to museums and, you know, try and get viable DNA from them, um, in order to clone them back to life, which is another whole topic. Um, but um, in Siberia, it's actually taboo, um, the... Yakuts people believe it's taboo to even touch these bones because they believe that the spirit of the animal still resides in them and that once they're above ground, they're basically back and that you're disturbing their sleep. And so that is a theme that runs throughout the book. The the fossils themselves, they just want to go back in the ground. They just want to be left alone. Um, but when they're above ground, they're, they have a sort of version of consciousness in my book and are able to communicate with each other even though we can't hear them. So that's, that sounds like, I mean, a lot of people have thought it was a sort of bizarre conceit, but it's actually linked to a lot of spiritual beliefs. Mm. If you've just joined us, uh, I'm Mel Cranenberg. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm talking to author Chris Flynn about his novel Mammoth, uh, which is a mostly true history as told by a 13,000-year-old mammoth fossil. Um, it is really interesting what you've just uh, spoken about, this idea of, um, you know, like the kind of animation of like dead bones as beliefs, mm. as a belief system of certain people, because I guess the context that, that you've set this book in, which is, you know, an auction, selling things off that, that mm-hmm. you know, allegedly have been dug up as a curiosity, um, you know, is it's really a, a, an interesting sort of way of examining a lot of modern issues. Um, I do want to talk about the art of the novel as a way, as a vehicle for some of these things, because I think, you know, uh, people have different uh, interests when it comes to their, you know, what they want to read in a novel. But what I really delight in when I see a book like this, Chris, is that you're, you know, truly using the form um, for the kind of experimental aims 
and readable aims that it was designed for. Uh, you're telling a history at the same time as kind of pushing the notion of, of how that history could be told and even right. what is history. So can you talk about, like, this idea of, of the novel and, and what your thoughts are? Because I'm lucky enough to know you reasonably well. Chris, uh, we've worked together over the years and I've read mm-hmm. all of your books and you rarely, um, you know, thematically and also in terms of the tone and style of book that you write, it doesn't really seem to be any, you know, like anything else that's usually coming out in Australian literature at that time. So I'm quite interested in your approach to taking on yeah. a novel. I wonder if that's related to the fact that um, I'm such a voracious reader and, and part of that is linked to the fact that I have been for years a critic as well, although I don't do that as much as I used to. But I've been keeping a spreadsheet um, on my computer for 10 years now of listing all the books that I have read. So I know every book that I've read over the last 10 years. I know how many books I've read. And it, can, it varies between 50 and 100 a year. And, and because I'm keeping that spreadsheet, I'm able to keep quite a close um, watch on my reading habits and make sure that I don't fall into just reading the same kind of thing all the time. So I'm able to look at gender balance throughout the um, years. I'm able to look at um, what styles of book I'm reading, and I try to read as widely as possible. And, um, and I think maybe that has informed my own writing because I haven't fallen into the trap of just reading the same kind of book all the time and in some sort of you know, literary comfort zone. And in actual fact, I get fairly bored with um, your very standard format of novel. I like novels that are a bit experimental and willing to um, approach the form in a different way. And so I think maybe that's why I have um, gone for three, I mean, I've written three very different novels in terms of their format and their style um, and their voices. And, you know, I'm continuing that with my with the, with the next one that I'm, I'm working on because I think it's a beautiful vehicle, the novel, for um, examining um, humanity and the way we live, the way we are. And it's too easy to fall into a very sort of academic and um, prescribed way of doing that. You know, there's a million and one writers' courses out there and everyone's like looking for the secret. What's the, what's the way to write it? What's the best way to write a novel? But in actual fact, there's a million ways to do it. Mm. And, and, and they're all equally good. Um, but we tend to be steered towards doing it in very specific ways. And um, I, don't, I don't really subscribe to that. It makes me feel a bit uncomfortable when, you know, people try to follow, a, put, essentially put a, a very hard structure on what is a very creative and artistic practice. Yeah. You should be able to, um, you know, use your imagination as much in the, in the um, style and the format as you do in the actual narrative itself. And so that's not only am I trying to do work that's um, fairly imaginative um, in its content, but I'm also trying to play around with how it's presented. And that's a bit of a challenge for some readers, I'll, I'll admit it. Um, and a lot of people have said, you know, when they picked up this book, they thought, what the hell is this? You know, this, <laughs> so I'm so skeptical. But hopefully most of them fairly quickly fall into it because you're dropped right in and you're converted quickly and you accept the conceit and from that point on, 
you can actually enjoy yourself. I think the language that you use is also incredibly accessible. And I think that that's one of the things that I found quite interesting was that you really hit your stride straight away with a, with a tone and a voice that was, you know, at once kind of playful and modern, but with enough of a kind of, you know, uh, like a few sort of archaic bends and enough sort of, of a sense of, um, you know, hearing from something out of time that you got those little twists um, to play with. There's a lot of gags and humour that are made for a modern audience. And, and I, th- I thought it was really playfully done. And I think that that's pretty much, if you look at the criticism of this book as well, like a lot of others have felt that this was a book that you sort of immediately start smiling when you're reading it, even though actually what you're covering is quite, it's quite dark subject matter. Um, was that an intentional sort of a, an effort to sort of have the kind of, uh, you know, that sort of uh, juxtaposition of having a very light um, approach to the narration to kind of balance out the fact that these, this is really otherwise, you know, otherwise would be quite dark, dark subject matter. Yeah, it's, it's a huge consideration for me. I mean, I, I think partly I automatically do that because I'm Irish and um, we can't really take anything very seriously. We have to, you know, we'll tell jokes at a funeral. It's so, um, but that's because I kind of believe that's a nice way to live, um, that, that just being completely serious all the time um, who's like that? I don't know anyone like that, really. Everyone I know um, is constantly, no matter what's going on in their life, will constantly try to make jokes and have banter with each other and have a laugh with their friends. And yet that's not often reflected in literature, which is sometimes very serious, seemingly just because it wants to be taken so seriously. And, um, and I think when you're dealing with serious themes such as extinction, um, you know, appropriation, um, and uh, cloning, and... Um, the ethics around that and climate change, which this novel deals with, mm. um, these are these are like super important issues for us as a, as, a, as, a, as a species. And part of the issue I feel with them is that we have a tendency to proselytize and you know hit people over the head and say it's really serious. You've got to be really serious about this, but it just makes people tune out. Um, and I think if you can introduce a little bit of it's not easy to do necessarily, but if you introduce a bit of levity or just present some of these issues in a, a more sort of accessible and, um, and pleasant way where you can have a smile and say, oh, yeah, 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 um, then it just makes it a little bit um, easier to not dismiss <laughs> because I don't think we can afford to dismiss um, extinction of species and climate change as topics. They're too important. But so- if we're just... If we're going to be dead, deadly serious with them all the time, mm. people are just not going to listen. You know, Absolutely. so it was a, it was a conscious decision of mine to try and introduce humour into uh, an otherwise an often very humorless debate. It's an interesting one because I, I've been referring to this book as a book about the you know a kind of satire on the Anthropocene, and mm. I, I stand by that because it does really feel like you know while it's not a classic cli-fi or climate fiction book. Um, you know, we actually do have a kind of classic typification now for a climate fiction book. This yeah. doesn't really fit into that mode at all, but I really felt like it was quite a powerful um, entry into that genre, if you like, in, in a, mm. a sort of tangential way. Um, you know, was that something that you were considering it being? I mean, you've, you've mentioned that it is about that. And also like this reflection of us, um, you know, our, our kind of need to anthropomorphise animals um, really you know, desperately um, to, to get the only way that we can feel empathy, I guess, for an animal is to try to think of them as like us. I sort of felt like you were really playing with that line as well quite a bit. 
Well, the problem with us as a, as a species, and we have many problems, we all know this, um, is that um, we make the same mistakes again and again. And um, we see that all the time now. Um, every day you hear about something and you think, oh my God, we're doing the same, we're making the same mistake again. But um, with the book, I, I wanted it to be a little bit about climate change in that it looks back at the real origin of human influence climate change, i.e. when our ancestors turned up 10, 12,000 years ago uh, on, in North America and Northern Europe. And there were millions of these creatures roaming around, doing their job, keeping the ground cold. And we just killed them all mm. and, and ate them all and skinned them and used their bones and their, and, their, and their pelts for our own purposes. And then everything started to get warm. And that was the end of the Ice Age because they weren't keeping the ground cold anymore, stomping around on it. And so there's a huge mistake we made. And, and we also extinguished them. So, you know, you, you're actually wiping out your own food supply as well. So incredibly stupid mistakes that we made. But we've continued to make them over the years. And I thought it was nice to look from the animal's perspective um, on us over like a long period of time so that um, sometimes it's hard for us to see that we're making um, the same mistakes again and again. Um, and so having those outsiders, different species from us, um, observing us and, and, and pointing out our mistakes, I think is um, a nice, easier way to understand that what we're doing wrong. And I, I was also working at the RSPCA, as you know, for five years whilst I was writing this, so pretty easy for me to anthropomorphize yeah. um, uh, animals because I was working with sick and injured animals every day who mm. clearly were communicating with me and with each other and other species and had a very powerful internal life. There was no denying it. Mm. Um, and so that was really helpful to me, finding a way into the, the heads of these creatures as they observed us. It's really... I. I... I do highly recommend this as a um, this book. It's it's a quick read and there's a lot in it. Um, I sort of went over it a second time or started to just because I was like, oh, this is quite delightful. Um, at the same time as what am I saying is delightful exactly, um, you know. So it's really like you know I I, fe I felt strongly by the end of it that you know what you know how how sad it is that we um, can only uh, admire something when it's, it's placed in, in the museum context, that we, you know, ravage our, our planet, we um, destroy other peoples without thought or ruin their lives, um, but can only really care about them in retrospect. Um, is that, you know, I guess the ultimate message of this book? Well, also, um, right, especially towards the end of the book, I think that's very strong that we, uh, we feel um, attached to the things that we have broken in the past. And we feel nostalgia for the world the way it used to be. Um, and ironically, we are now able to extend that empathy towards perhaps correcting some of the mistakes of the past in order to help us forge a better future. And that's what the book is essentially about, because um, we are actually um, cloning these creatures back to life. And many other creatures, there's three different teams around the world right now, um, in Harvard, um, South Korea, and China, um, who've got DNA of the mammoth, because there was a specimen thought out in 2006 that was bleeding and had raw flesh, mm -hmm. so they have viable DNA. So they're working on bringing it back. And then, of course, um, we have to read James Bradley's Ghost Species on the Perils oh, right. <laughs> of that. So, 
as well, seen from a Neanderthal's perspective in part. So it's great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's ethically fraught what we're doing, but and there are and sometimes the scientific community will do something just because they can, yes. not necessarily because they should. And we are definitely going to bring back um, a bunch of creatures in order to try and um, restore our empathy and admiration for them. Whether that will be the right thing to do, whether that's maybe that's just another mistake we're making, um, that remains to be seen, but um, probably it won't have a happy ending. <laughs> Well, uh, Chris Flynn, I very much look forward to seeing uh, what you come up with next. Um, and I highly recommend your book. It's an excellent read. Thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thank you very much, Mel. Thank you. Thanks. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. There's a script for everything, someone voice wavering says, she's dead. And you say, what? They say it again and you say, oh my God. You ask the usual questions and then hang up and everything is incredibly quiet. You tell your boyfriend and you both walk around the house trying to pack useful things, a sleeve of Valium, warm socks. You call your brother in London. He texts to say, it's 5am there, can it wait? You call back. Before he even answers the phone, he knows. That is an excerpt from Sarah Walker's incredibly moving essay, Contested Breath, which is out now in the current issue of the Australian Book Review. Australian, uh, yeah, the Australian Book Review, sorry. I had to recheck that. Um, it is a beautiful meditation on the death of the author's mother as uh, we were all entering lockdown. Sarah joins me on the line now, Sarah Walker. Uh, welcome to Backstory. Thanks, Mel. It's incredibly... Um, I, I This essay, as I sort of said to you before uh, we came on air, is just um, so clear-eyed uh, a kind of mm. rendering of the experience that you went through, which really wasn't very long ago at all. I, I want to talk mm. to you about that. How has it been for you, um, both personally and also to have created this piece of work out of your experience? Um, yeah, it's been, uh, it's, been a funny, um, it's been a funny time. I think um, the, the first thing I did when... So mum died very uh, suddenly and unexpectedly and we had to um, uh, go to the house and the police were there and we had to kind of have that whole extremely strange experience Um uh, in mid-March, just as everything was starting to lock down, and so we were kind of in this state of total um, chaos, really, because everything was changing so quickly and we didn't know what we could do or what we ethically ought to do. Um, so, yeah, as that was all happening, I just started... I wanted to remember elements of the experience. I actually went back and read um, my diary from the day that we went to our house, and there were things in there that I'd already forgotten um, so I think I've always used writing as a way to just remember and also kind of narrativize and make sense of things. And in a time when everything was extremely nonsensical, I think um, it was very helpful to be thinking in a way that was shifting between the micro and the macro just to kind of, um, yeah, to, to structure the experience in my head in a way that felt like I could synthesize it. Um yeah, so thank you for saying that it, it, yeah. it is uh, clear-eyed in that way. I think when I gave mm. it to Peter Rose at the ADR, I was like, look, I wrote this. I don't know. Is it, I don't know if anyone 
would find this remotely interesting to read except for me. Um, so, yeah, he was very, very supportive of it and it was very reassuring to be like, okay, there's something in here that isn't just misery porn and a person being like, ah, this weird thing happened. Um, it absolutely yeah. <laughs> is. Uh, I mean, you the, the, the subhead to this is the ethics of assembly in an age of absurdity and I think really what you have done is really capture in this incredibly human and quite restrained way um, the most extreme thing that can happen in a person's life, the loss of a loved one, set mm. against another extreme thing that no one expected, which is a pandemic. Um, yeah. it, it was like to have just kind of to use the language that you've used, which is beautifully written, but written in a way that's very, very much laying it there um, mm. for the reader to kind of really give the imagery of what it was like to be in those moments. Mm. I think really universalises this in a way um, that, you know, to, how, how do people um, deal with these things when, when you're in this situation is, is kind of the question you're answering. Yeah, because I think that thing about the age of absurdity, I think, was something that everyone's really experienced this year, where the structures that we rely on all of a sudden didn't exist and everything was suddenly in flux. And, um, I mean, when someone dies, there's such structures for what you do, like how you organize a funeral, how you assemble people. And then when you're sort of being like, are people going to die because we're having an assembly, things start to become very strange and I think um, something I was very aware of even at the time where how I think we had this idea of how an emotional experience should happen and it should be kind of moving and profound and what it actually was was more like kind of a weird like absurd it, it felt like being in a Beckett play like all these just insane things kept happening and um, it was kind of funny in uh, in a way and I, I, I kind of wanted to capture something of that in the essay, this kind of like deflation of having these moments which should be really beautiful and moving with violins sort of swelling under you, which are actually just kind of awkward and weird and, um, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. I think is kind of the, the energy of 2020. Everything's just a bit like, <laughs> oh, what? what? What's happening? What? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, you, you certainly, um, there, there was a, a kind of wonderful, you know, wonderfully rendered, not wonderful at all, tra <laughs> um, like kind of, transition from when you first approach the funeral home where the you know the worker there who's really mm -hmm. warm and wants to immediately hold your hands and and kind of squeeze them even though you're sort of yeah. acting as though is that right um and and, do, and said I don't care I, and does it anyway and then it comes yeah. to the cremation and they're all very much no one's touching anyone people yeah. are wearing gloves and masks mm. and etc um you sort of see that that kind of the withdrawal of contact mm. at the same time as you're going through grief um yeah horrible resonance. I mean I had so many friends who were sort of saying god I just want to hug you but I've got a sore throat, so I, I can't come to your house. So, yeah, we were kind of oddly isolated in, in many ways. And people really, especially older people, really struggled with it because they were like, I don't care, I'm going to hug you. And I was like, "You're if I'm sick and you get sick, you're probably going to die. So don't don't hug me. No, don't put that weight on me. Like the strangeness of an embrace being a really loaded experience and one that we had to be like, I know that you're trying to give me solace, but actually what you're giving me is more pressure mm. and fear in this time. Yeah, it was very, uh, very unusual. Yeah. 
If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to author Sarah Walker about her truly incredible essay, Contested Breath, which is the cover essay for the Australian Book Review, um, most recent edition, June, July edition. Um, Sarah, your, the cover image um, for mm. this edition is a picture you've taken. You are a photographer as well, as if you couldn't be talented enough. Um, <laughs> so um, it, it's just uh, really incredible to be able to match an author's vision of, of what they were experiencing with an actual vision from the author. Mm. Um, can mm. you talk about that, how, how it's kind of, you know, how using this imagery from your, your mum has, has kind of felt or helped with, your, with writing and putting this essay together? Yeah, I mean, um, when we were... The nice thing about being a photographer is that when um, something emotional happens, you've got a pretty good cache of images to draw on because I think, you know, sometimes you go to funerals and the best photo that they've found of someone is from 40 years ago or is taken on a terrible digital camera. And, yeah, it felt nice to be able to be like, okay, well, I can do one thing. I, I know I've got one thing locked down. And then when um, the OBR um, agreed to publish it, they contacted me and said, oh, do you have another image that you could use? And um, I'd done a project many years ago uh, where I took a photo every day and included a quote that had emerged from that day. And um, I'd taken a photo of my mum uh, lit with a mobile phone, which kind of has this strange sort of ethereal quality to it. And um, the quote that was originally on that image was her saying, oh, you have to pick a good one so people don't think I'm old and ugly. Um <laughs> Uh, which um, was excised from the image for the, for the cover. But, um, She's beautiful. Yeah. 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 It was interesting. My brother, actually, the first thing he said when he saw the cover was, oh, wow, that's actually quite similar to how she looked at the viewing. And I was like, wow, there you go. That strange sort of not quite real quality to the skin. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, no, it felt very, I felt very supported by the ABR throughout in there. Yeah, just incredible promotion and, and care um, of my writing and, and this essay in particular. Yeah, it's really special to have my mum's face kind of out in the world and, yeah. 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 It's very des- – it's deserved because this uh, this essay couldn't be more resonant with people, I think, and, and to have it at its centre, the actual heart of the essay, your mother, um, is really incredible because one of the things that really this story is about um, – without you explicitly saying exactly like say it, saying it exactly like that is that mm. here you know funerals the experiences around death um, or even celebration are supposed to be there for us to find a way to process what's happened but mm. in fact everything that's been going on is is running interference uh, throughout the essay yeah. you're you're trying to work out and I hope it's okay to say this that mm. how your mother has even died and and by the end yeah. even you know that kind of idea of her you know, she is is only bubbling up through the cracks of the essay yeah. around all this other kind of theatre of the pandemic that's going mm. on. So, mm. did you feel like this was a way of maybe, um, you know, bringing her out um, from underneath all of that? I mean, I think I was fairly aware of not wanting the essay to feel like a eulogy. There's actually very little of my mother. My, li- my living mother in that essay, there's kind of only little moments of it. And I think I was quite careful to make it about the experience after she died and the strangeness of that because I didn't... Something felt strange about trying to bring too much of our relationship and her life to it. Um, 
and I kind of like that, yeah, you see little glimpses of her, just just kind of handfuls of, of her as a living person, but what is so prominent and what has been so prominent is the kind of strangeness of her death and the, the lack of closure around it. The number of phone calls I get from friends of hers who are just like, they're always the same phone call where they're like, oh, how are you? Yeah, yeah, good. How's the dog, mum's dog? Yeah, she's fine. Have you heard anything from the coroner? Like there's always just mm-hmm. like you can tell that that's the, the the purpose of the phone call. And a thing that I didn't know because I have been lucky to not be through this process before is that um, a coronial inquest takes an insanely long time. Like we won't get a medical report for another two months, which will be five months since mum died. Um, so yeah, just the stretched out nature of it is, um, is, uh, actually feels also kind of really resonant with this year where time seems to be, everything seems to be taking the wrong amount of time, whether it's too fast and too slow at the same, uh, yeah, at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I obviously every condolence for your, for your very recent loss, it must be so incredibly (laughs) difficult, but at the same time, this essay is so beautifully (laughs) crafted and, um, you know, and I feel like, uh, you know, you are such a strong writer. You, you are are the, um, ABRs, uh, one of their inaugural, uh, rising stars, which is a, a recently created sort of, I guess, title, um, your, your um, piece, uh, Floundering, uh, was mm. runner-up in the 2019 Calibre Essay Prize. I very much mm-hmm. feel like you're a voice that I want to hear more from. Um, oh, thank you. Are, you. are you working on another essay to follow up from this, perhaps? I'm working. Uh, I'm, work, I'm, pitching a, I'm pitching a book. It's all in the like, process of not knowing uh, what's going on with acquisitions quite yet. But, um, yeah, I'm working on a collection of essays, um, tentatively titled The First Time I Thought I Was Dying, first time comma, I thought I was dying, um, about the kind of uh, out-of-control body in late capitalism and the ways that, uh, yeah, we're sort of told that we have to be in control of our bodies and our minds at all times, but uh, our bodies and our minds are not very good at being controlled. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so that's proving quite a a rich... um, uh, seem to be exploring through a series of essays um, about all manner of things about mental health and sex and uh, body image and yeah that's um, yeah that's proving really satisfying to, to write. I might just leave you with this thought as well. I, I know the essay form is a very old, uh, for, you know, literary form that I mm. feel is one of the great, um, you know, flourishings or renewals of like the recent era. Um, there yeah. seems to be a really strong return to this kind of long form as a, you know, I guess as a way of offsetting the fact that we're very much in short form in every mm. other sense. Do you feel yeah. as though that this is, there's a really rich vein of essays coming up now? Oh, absolutely. Like there's so much writing um, that works in that kind of creative non-fiction space of fusing memoir with cultural critique, um, yeah, which I, I am really finding very exciting. I mean, I think for me, like Maggie Nelson was the first writer where I was like, oh, whoa, you can write about the incredibly intimate aspects of your life and talk about high theory in the same space. Oh, my God. And like if you look at Gia Tolentino's, recent collection of essays that's a, another one that I was like yeah okay great like this feels so vibrant and, and present as a form right now yeah well Sarah thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your really quite wonderful um, and moving essay thank you ah, no worries at all thank you so much thanks 
That was uh, author Sarah Walker, whose essay, Contested Breath, is in the most recent edition of the Australian Book Review, the ABR, uh, which is out now. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.